0: Well, to our Christ Journey family, to all the guests that are joining us, um, I know it goes without saying that you have already been praying. Uh, those of you who are joining us from around the world, different nations, uh, you have been thinking about us, and we appreciate that so much. Um, our hearts are heavy today as we uh, find ourselves enveloped by an unspeakable tragedy And we appreciate your prayers that are coming from different states in this union and nations around the world, but uh, we're feeling the heaviness ourselves, and we welcome your lift as together we remember that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. But when trouble comes, we are invited to bring it to the throne of grace where where we can find help. And so as we bring our sorrow today, let's remember that sorrow helps us to connect our hearts in ways like this. Um, Anger also makes its presence known. Anger, uh, also a very present force in our lives. Anger is a signal and one worth listening to. These are the first words of the first chapter of the book Dance of Anger written by Dr. Lerner, staff psychologist of the famed Menninger Clinic. Anger is a signal and one worth listening to. It goes on to say this, it may be a message that we're being hurt, or that our rights are being violated, or that our needs and our wants are simply not being adequately met, or simply something is not right. So anger is a signal worth listening to That something's not right. You familiar with that signal? I think we all are, aren't we? And sometimes, you know what? Honesty? (laughs) uh, We're what's not right. It's like in the Peanuts cartoon where Lucy tells Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. And Charlie says to her, but I thought you had inner peace. And she said, I do have inner peace, but I also have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) You're thinking of somebody, aren't you? But maybe even someone we see in the mirror from time to time. Sometimes that outer obnoxiousness shows up in vengeful anger. You hear the story about the woman that was bitten by the mad dog? Looked like she was going to die of rabies, so her doctor told her that she probably ought to start writing her will. So she got out a pen and paper, started writing and writing and writing, and the doctor finally says, that's a long will you're writing. She said, this is not a will. This is a list of all the people I'm going to bite. (laughs) There are many types of anger, and one of them, is vengeful. An anger of vengeful aggression that acts out in ways that are hurtful, aggressive hurtful behavior to others. This is what we see in road rage, this is what we see in bullying. I believe this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5:22 when he says, "Anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment from God." Why? Well, the context tells us that this kind of anger is the seedbed from, uh, from which murder springs. Pride and jealousy kind of brood in bitterness to the point that we then start treating other people as expendable. Like they don't matter. And Jesus said when we do that, treating people that way, a way that calls them names like empty-headed fool. You're just taking up space with your life. It said, he said it places you in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5, 22. Would you say that's dangerous anger? To Jesus' point of view. By the way, Jesus' first mention of hell in the Gospel of Matthew is connected to acting out vengeful anger in thought or in word or in deed. Whoa! Wait a minute. You t- you're telling me, Pastor, that Jesus says I'm never supposed to be angry? No, that's not what I said. That's not what He said. Just listen, because what He said is sometimes people vent in dangerous ways like that, places them at risk. Other times we stuff it. You ever done that? We're familiar with that. You stuff your anger. Is that true? We don't feel safe to share it necessarily, and so we uh, we hide it or like that proverbial beach ball. We try to keep it underwater, but it eventually shows up somewhere. Counselors tell us that anger suppressed, that's what that would be called, suppressing your anger leads to depression. Like what happened to Jonah in the Bible. Remember his story? He's so angry with God, he's so upset with God, he's so depressed in his disobedience that he gets... The sailors to throw him overboard at sea. I mean, he tries to do himself in. Sometimes suppressed anger becomes toxic, and sometimes it seeps out in um, passive aggression. There's another form the expression of negative emotions. In passive and indirect ways, like non-cooperation or like manipulation behind the scenes, that's where people say, you know, no, you pretend to be okay, but really you get sneaky through hypocrisy or through um, uh, sarcasm and betrayal. I wonder if this was the anger at work in Judas' heart when Jesus said to him, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Passive aggression, Luke chapter 22, verse 48. So we see three worldly ways that anger is expressed, and perhaps this is what James had in mind when he writes in his letter um, Man's anger does not bring about the righteousness God desires. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, because as we continue in the story of Hosea today, we're going to feel the heat and the energy of anger at work, but it is not. The anger of fallen, human, sinful people. It is God's kind of anger. What's the difference? Well, God's anger has no sin in it. Can't imagine that, but God's anger has no evil in it. In fact, in one of his letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, he says this, In your anger do not sin, which kind of assumes it must be possible that uh, there is a way to be angry and yet not give the devil a foothold to mess with us. There's a way to be angry and still be pleasing to God. There's a way to be angry to harness the energy of anger to serve a higher cause, a godly one. That's what I'm reading here. And anger in itself, anger at sin is not evil, it can be helpful. Mothers Against Drunk Driving calls their organization what? Mad, mad. And the mothers I know in it have reason to be angry because they have suffered loss, tragedy, hurt, pain, the heartache of violent criminal behavior that has left empty seats at their family table. But they seek to channel the anger assertively to change for good. The anger isn't team. It's passionate it's uh, attuned to pain and heartache and and hurt like mama grizzly anger but but they don't exist to stay angry they don't exist to be angry they channel their anger into saving lives into serving victims into reducing death by drunk driving the story of Hosea invites us into an emotional journey with God in anger where passion and pain come together. And something I've learned in my study of the story is that uh, this isn't just like a volcanic eruption burst from God where he's one and done with his anger. You know what? He cycles through anger five times in the story of Hosea. The story involves five cycles of anger that process through it. And in five sections, chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, chapter 4 through 6, chapter 6 through 11, and then finally chapters 11 to the end. Five sections, and on the chart that you're looking at right now, it shows it as it cycles in process from left to right. And each circle shows us where God's anger begins and then where it processes into the experience toward salvation. How is that significant for us? Well... I said that each week we're going to be learning something about God and how he's bringing salvation to us. I said we'd be learning something about how we relate to one another in our families. And then I said that we're going to take a look at how God's people, how does this speak to us as God's people? And this week, in all three of those categories, I'm learning that anger applies in every level. But here's my question. When when does God get angry? You think you know? How does God process it. And then can I learn from him how to do that with stuff in my own life, in my own situations? And so I have noted not only the five cycles of anger in the story, but I've also noted a five-part process of how God does anger in Hosea. And so what I'd like to do is invite you to consider if maybe it could be a model for how we do anger too and i know that we're not god and i know that his anger is not sinful like ours tends to be but i'm thinking there may be some help for us for learning how to process our anger from the way god does it with his people that he loves so much in this story and so here are the f- here are five steps here's the first one number 1 feel the emotion feel the emotion the anger, at whatever degree it's presenting. Now, I don't know exactly how God does this, but I do know in human anger there are different intensities, you know, different settings for the flame. Uh, There's at the low end, it's like annoyed, frustrated, upset, and then you start kicking it into medium heat and higher levels like ticked, furious, enraged, and it goes on. So feel the emotion at whatever level. We see that happening from God's point of view in this book. And I also believe if some of you are reading ahead in the book, you're going to find some very difficult words that are used in this. I think this helps me understand some of the words that God uses in this book. Number two, identify the cause. Now, this isn't about blaming and shaming. This is just about, this is about telling the truth in your story as clearly as you can see it from the facts. For God, it was the rebellious sins of a wayward people. They're behaving like an adulterous and unfaithful wife. He makes that very plain in his list. Number three, name the risk. What is it? that the violating behavior is placing at risk. Now for God, it was the love of his people. It was his love relationship forward with his people. (laughs) The fact that he doesn't want to lose what he's got with his people. And that triggered his angry response. Number four, then channel the energy the energy of anger into some kind of intervention. And we and as you read this, you know what you see? Here's what we see. God does not just want to drop the hammer and go into DEFCON 4, you know, and unload it all on the people that he loves. So what does he do? He's acting to warn, to rouse, to uh to shock You know, to to shake them up, to wake them up without harming them in the process, but to sound off. We saw last week about the lion's roar. Wake them up if at all possible. What that tells me is that just because you have anger rising in you doesn't mean that anger has to have you rising in it. It's your servant, not your master. And number five, move toward the goal, toward restoration and redemption. Redemption. Even when justice must be done, even when sin must be punished, even when judgment must come, because we see that as a storyline in the book, God's judgment, when God's judgment comes, it's tempered in Hosea with mercy and lifted in promise. It's part of the cycle that you'll see God acting out. So what does God do with his anger? Here it is real quick. He feels the emotion. He identifies the cause. He names the risk. He channels the energy, and then he moves toward the goal to restore, to correct, if they will. Now let's unpack it a little bit more specifically with item number two, identify the cause, because you're going to see this all through the book. If you've already read it, then you've seen it. I mean, there are lists of facts that God is tracking with them, and it's all through the book. But chapters 4 and 5 take us into kind of a courtroom scene where God gives a list of indictments to make clear what the people's disobedience looks like and then he says so this is not only this is i've seen this in the general population i've also seen this in the spiritual leaders in the governmental leaders as well and here they are number one spiritual infidelity verse one there is no faithfulness no love no acknowledgement of god in the land in other words he said you know you've left your first love you have forsaken me who gave you identity and who has you in spiritual family, but you've wandered off. Verse two, that loss of faith is now being seen in symptoms of moral and social breakdown in their culture. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. And they break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed, violence. The Ten Commandments are being broken left and right, this is what God says, and there's no respect for boundaries, No respect for property, no respect for people. And so there's moral decay and social breakdown. That's what he says. And then verse 3, it's even showing up in the ecosystem. The land mourns, and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, they're all dying. So nature is wasting away. And then the rest of that chapter notes three things, three reasons that this is happening. Ignorance, number one. Verse 6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. You mean they're not being given knowledge? No, it's verse 7. He says they have knowledge, but they've rejected it. It's like there's a difference between sitting in the dark, lights out, and closing your eyes. He's saying the truth is there, it's available, but people are just closing their eyes to it. As a result, they're in the dark. Then number two, lust. (laughs) Lust is pervasive. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. This is God talking, verse 12. And he says that multiple times throughout the whole book. It's like, man, you're killing me. You're breaking my heart in our relationship. And number three, verse 16, they're just stubborn. He says the Israelites are stubborn. They're like a stubborn heifer. You ever tried to move a beast that didn't want to move? You can't move me. You can't make me. You're not the boss of me. This is what's happening there. So they see what's going on, they close their eyes to it, instead they turn to sensual indulgence and to feel-good religion that God is not in, and then they're just stubborn. They're not open to change. They like the way it is. It's like I read somewhere that some people's minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed, and permanently set and God says this is the way it is for the rulers the rulers of the land at that time he said they they all dearly loved the shameful ways The leaders in the royal house, the political leaders in government, he said they're rebels in deep slaughter, deep in slaughter, and then the prophets, they stumble right along with you, and the priests (laughs) that are supposed to be the spiritual leaders, they're feeding on the sins of the people. So it's like, man, everywhere God looks, he sees this, and now he's recounting it, and he's saying, here are the issues at hand. They may think that God's not paying attention, but God is saying, no, look, I am. And when he pays attention, what does he see? My family's in trouble. And if your house was on fire, your family was on trouble, would you be sounding the alarm? That's what's going on with God. I mean, he's using anger as a signal. Anger is a signal worth listening to to show them that something is not right. Does that make sense? So in chapter 5, verse 10, you're going to read a verse like this. God says, I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. The Bible uses the word wrath as an expression of God's anger. And I bet you've heard somewhere at some point and formed some opinion about those words, the wrath of God. You ever heard about the wrath of God? That the Bible, is, in fact, it's impossible to read the Bible without reading about the wrath of God. And at surface level, here's what I'm thinking, it can have you, when you think about the wrath of God, it's like thoughts of God flying off the handle, unloading destruction in uh, scorched earth expressions toward people that just don't meet expectation. Is that what the wrath of God is? No. A more serious and careful reflection of this very book reveals that there are tensions at work in God's holiness With justice and love, justice and love, that's what's going on here. Baker Bookhouse is a respected resource in Christian theology, and its Dictionary of Christian Ethics says this about the wrath of God. Wrath does not mean an irrational passion with God. It means God's opposition to evil and his judgment upon evil, not upon people, upon evil. Wrath is not a permanent attribute of God. Love and holiness are part of God's essential nature, but wrath is contingent. Wrath is contingent upon human sin. If there were no sin, there would be no wrath. So when God acts in wrath, the wrath of God, it's never against people. It's against the thing that separates people from God, sin. Think of wrath like proton therapy. It attacks the cancer in order to save the people. And the Bible constantly affirms, this is what's in God's heart. God is slow in anger, abounding in steadfast love. But the tension here is between justice and love. And we see it in... In the story of Hosea, and in many Bible stories actually, many believe that Noah preached God's warning and God's grace for years and years before the flood ever came. Before he built the ark, he was already making the announcement. And then all the while that he was building it, he was making the announcement. And and all the while he was making the announcement, the people just weren't paying attention. They They would reject it right up to the point when the door was shut and uh, they couldn't get in. There were, they were given years of opportunity before the judgment came. And in Hosea, when you read about the judgment of God there, God is mirroring for his people, remember? The message of warning in a way that they could feel. If you relate to anger, then you're going to feel some of that, but without harming them. In the story, the warning is going off, but the harm is not there. As he does, anger is the signal, remember? Anger is the signal with words of emotion that identify behaviors, that name risk, that channel energy to move toward the goal of correction and redemption. And we can use anger that way, too. That's where I'm going next, if we'll let God teach us. But it doesn't come natural to us, does it? Some of us were raised to understand that big boys don't cry. And the rest of that says, no, big boys get mad. Big boys get even. And then when those little boys grow into big boys and then become men, and destructive anger is what they learned and were taught and what they practiced, then, once again, we're like a hammer that views everything like a nail. Some girls were told this, it's not nice to be mad it's not nice to get angry so you know what maybe you learned how to stuff your anger or to hide your anger or to squeeze it into other passive aggressive ways no i'm i'm okay it's no everything's okay in some of our homes anger was the most readily available emotion if you wanted to feel anything it was usually Anger that was being felt, and yelling was like talking in some homes. Now, if I hadn't spoken with some of our members through the years to understand those things, I would know that I'm not just preaching over anybody's head right now. I'm speaking as to why this message would matter, and maybe if you were asking yourself earlier, now, why would Bill be talking about this? This is like, are you kidding me? Wrath of God stuff? Yeah, because we don't know what to do with our own anger, and maybe God showing us what He did with His when things weren't right and it was a signal, then maybe we could learn something about what we could do about it. So, what can you do about your anger? Well, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to invite you to do ask God to help you filter it through the five part process. And I would invite you to try it this week. Number one, feel the emotion. Don't just react. Don't just erupt. Feel first. Feel the emotion, and then give it an intensity setting, one to ten. Where are you on this, and are you investing the amount of energy into the value of the issue at hand? Anger is a signal that something's not right. What can you do about it? Become self-aware. That's what feeling is. The emotion means, number two, identify the cause. This is not about judging or shaming or blaming. You make me so, no, that's not what this is. This is identify the facts as dispassionately as you can as to what triggered this. You're feeling the anger, it's a number seven, and so you're tracking back to say, where did this start? What was I afraid of losing? That's the next one. Name the risk. Anger usually is a secondary emotion, not a primary one, which means that it flows out of another one, maybe a fear. And so name the thing at risk that you don't want to lose. And then four and five, channel the energy and move toward the goal to restore, to redeem. It is possible to be angry and not sin. Why? Because anger is a signal not a master and just because you feel it doesn't mean that that it's the boss of you this is what i'm learning from god doesn't mean that you have to blow up doesn't mean that you have to stuff it it doesn't mean that it can't be controlled or that it can't be channeled You're made in the image of God. God shows us how to model this in his own behavior. So I'm wondering if you could just ask the Holy Spirit, when you sense it rising in you, that you could ask him to bear his fruit in you. That you know when the Bible says that the the fruit of the Holy Spirit is patience, the literal word is long-fused, long suffering. It means it's not quick to blow up. It has a long fuse. Which means that God has given us a way to give our families a future when uh, when fuses get ignited. Being in a marriage, growing up in a family of human beings is a complicated, mysterious thing. And sometimes we hurt each other and we don't even really know why. And sometimes we get stuck in anger and we, we don't know how to get out, but God In his spirit, by his spirit, is here to help us cycle through it. And just like in the story of Hosea, but not just in the story of Hosea, we have it in the story of Jesus. Did you know the name Hosea is a form of Joshua, from which we get Yeshua, which translates into the English word Jesus? And all of those mean salvation. In other words, your Savior can show you how to do this, how to grow in channeling your anger to health-giving outcomes. And when the enemy lies to us and wants us to uh, wants to steal our identity and mess with our marriages and our families through destructive anger, God is with us in Jesus by His Holy Spirit. And he feels our emotions. Did you know this is what the Bible says about Jesus? That he is touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He feels the level of emotion that we feel. And then he, he identifies the cause. And where that cause of that emotion tracks back to sin, he calls it out. And then he says, but I came to save you from your sin. And then he names the risk. What is at risk? He doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want to lose any of us. And so he channels that energy into anger against sin on the cross. And he absorbs God's holy wrath like proton therapy on your behalf against the cancer of sin. He's the Lamb of God, we sang about it earlier, who takes away the sin of our world. God was processing anger on the cross that he might extend mercy so he can move us toward the goal of being restored with our relationship with him and with one another. And that's what God wants. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish processes the anger so that he might give eternal life verse 17 god didn't send his son in to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved and i'm thinking that part of the world means you it means your family it means your marriage it means your life whatever firestorm or mess that you might find yourself in right now. Uh, But God will help us if we will let him. So one more time, maybe, you know, if you're still wondering, how can it happen to me? How can this happen for me? Well, I'll tell you, um, it happens when you start doing these things in your own life. Faith that acts. Faith without works is dead, but faith that acts itself out in works of love brings life. So you, you, don't ha- you don't learn how to swim unless you jump in the pool. And in applying lessons like this, I'm telling you, when you take steps to follow the five-step process, here's what's happened for me in this. Pride dies. That's one of the first casualties. <laughs> Pride dies, humility rises, ego and flesh gets crucified in Christ, and then restoration, reconciliation, the resurrection of God's grace shows up in our relationships, if we will. Did you pray with me? Help, Lord. It's a tough topic. It's, it's hard to think about. It's hard to talk about because we all bear scars— And we all know the danger, and we all know why we process in a certain way that we do, but we also know where we're stuck. So I pray that you would open our eyes wider to see how much you love us, and how you care about us, which is why the warning signals go up, which is why the alarms sound, that you try to wake us up, shake us up. If you're doing that for a brother today, for a sister today, I pray that you'll grant us grace by your spirit to pay attention right now that from the truth of your word, the truth of your heart, that you will guide us, guide them, guide me, as we learn to process how to be angry, but not sin. How to use the energy of anger to save lives, to save families, to save our homes. And we thank you that the way you showed justice being fully done was through unleashing your anger on the cross, but you were also there to absorb the full brunt of it that we might receive your mercy. So we receive your mercy today in a fresh way, Lord, as we make this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.